You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 245 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I am fair to middling. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if that was going to come out. <laughs> okay, that's good. Well, I'm freezing. Yeah, it's, I'm a bit that as well, actually. Like it's things are a little bit nippy around yes. here. Are you wearing your fingerless gloves? No, I haven't quite got to that point yet. I kind of have to wait for the chill to creep in through my entire bones before I get to the fingerless glove stage of things, but it won't, I'm not far off. What about you? Are you wearing yours? No, no, I don't have fingerless gloves because I don't let myself get to that stage. I turn on the heater. <laughs> oh, yes, you and your heater. You and your newfangled <laughs> ideas. <laughs> oh, yes, and my new favourite thing, this is not sponsored in any way, but I went to Kmart or Big W, I can't remember, and I bought this dressing gown for $12. I don't, can't believe how cheap some things are in there. And it's become my new favourite thing because it's so soft and fluffy and it keeps me ridiculously warm. Even when I go to bed, <laughs> I put it on top of me. Oh, look at you. Aren't you cute? You've just <laughs> discovered the dressing gown. I've been wearing mine for years. Remember I had the slanket? That was pretty oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yes. I've got to tell you, the slanket came in in, in really handy last week because – um, I did a post for my blog about how to be characters from the Adaban Cipher for Book Week. Oh, yes. Um, you might remember a couple of years ago I did How to Be Quinn and Ash from the Mapmaker Chronicles. Yes. So I did How to Be Gabe and Eddie and Mary and Midge. I had the whole neighbourhood here. We, the only person we so couldn't cool. do was Scarlet. We ran out of girls. But um, I had Mr. Eleven. I had him wrapped in the slanket with a curtain tie around his middle (laughs) and this little leather capelet thing that my friend had with a leather book and his sandals on and there he was, Gabe. The slanket. So cute. That's very good use. It makes the most amazing kind of monk's robe. Like, you know, I I was wearing it to channel Obi-Wan Kenobi there for a while but now we've moved on. And now it's. I know, it's amazing. Like, the thing with Book Week is if you kind of have a really good rummage around your cupboards, you can come up with some relatively interesting outfits. But I'm really lucky because my neighbours, um, not so much now because they're all getting a bit bigger, but they do have an, a fantastic dress-up box. So the stuff oh, wow. that comes out of their dress-up box is incredible. Have a look at the post because it pretty much all came out of their dress-up their, um, dress box. How cool. If you had to go to Book Week as a character, who would you go as? I would go as any character that I could wear a cloak because I just really love a cloak. And you know I've got my map maker cloak that's got the, yeah. got the lining and everything. The lining, um, yeah. But it's always been my biggest tip for mums um, 
and it used to be just mostly for boys because it used to be just mostly that most of the books used to be kind of boy related that where you wore cloaks but these days it's a very equal opportunity because there's many more books now where girls are out there adventuring in their cloaks but the cloak is fantastic because you whack it over the top of you know brown pants boots and a white shirt and then yeah. depending on your telling accessory you can be pretty much anyone you know oh, if you've yes. got a bow yeah you pop a bow in there and you're like your um will from Randy's Apprentice, mm-hmm. or if you, um, you know, like if with a with a map, your queen yep. from the map makers, yeah, and you know, with a, um, so you, you can be any of the girls from uh, the Annabelle Cipher with a cloak yep. and a pair of boots, like you're off and racing. Put a bow in yeah. there, you're merry, very like it's versatile. Awesome. Very yeah. You could have an eye patch and a cockatoo. You could, you could do all of those things. Yep. And um, but you know, book week can be very stressful for parents. Yeah. Like it's fab as an author because you get to go and. You know, kids are all there and everyone's dressed up and you're talking about books. And But as a parent, and particularly a non-crafty parent, which I am a non-crafty parent, um, I've always found it really quite stressful. So, you know, that's that's part of the reason I do my posts, to try and make it easier for all the other non-crafty parents out there. So Book Week is coming up. What are you doing during Book Week? Not, uh, not from a craft point of view, from an author point of view. Oh, from an author point of view, I've got lots and lots of school talks school visits booked in so I'll be um, heading off to Sydney for a week and I will be going to assorted um, schools to talk about writing and books and all the things I love schools that bring an author in because it's just such a a huge it makes a real event book week which I think is wonderful Um, and so yeah I'll be doing that and I will be leaving the builder in charge of getting Mr. Eleven Ah, off to book week in his yes in his outfit. So the outfits, but he's he's decided, he's, how's this? Even though I created a whole Gabe outfit for him, he's not going as Gabe. He wants to go as Hal from Brother Band. So we have to come up okay. with some nautical thing to go with his cloak. With his cloak. Awesome. And hmm. so when you go to Book Week, do you do the same talk every time? Oh, it depends on what the school wants. So sometimes you'll go and they just want you to do an author talk, in which case I do, um, you know, I've got a, a, a relatively standard author talk that I do, um, which incorporates a whole bunch of stuff about where ideas come from and how kids can, you know, use various things in their own writing. Um, But it focuses on my books as well. And, you know, we have a whole lot of – there's a bit of an interactive exercise, so I do that. Um, But sometimes they will also just want you to do workshops. So I have four or five different workshops that I do and I, you know, talk to the school in advance about what exactly it is that they want and which of the workshops will suit them best and – um, I think it's one of the things, like, you, you kind of have to, you have to find out what the expectations are of the school yeah. so they arrive ready to go and ready to deliver, you know, like, so, um, and it's really tiring, really tiring. I can imagine it would be very tiring going from school mm. to school, but it, it mm. must be energising as well if the kids are, you know, really into it. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's inspirational, like it's great, you know, and you sit there and you can see the ones that are, um, you know, really excited about it and they're, as I said, they're usually all there in their outfits, which is a bit of fun and um, it is, it is, you know, it's. I think that's the funny thing about it, it is both energising and exhausting, so it's one of those things by the end of the day, particularly if you've done four sessions, which, you know, you mm. can do in a day, um, you, you've sort of like you just – sort of expended so much energy because you're performing like you have to remember that it's a performance as well as a a, a lesson or a workshop or whatever um so it is yeah you I, I sort of walk out of the school and just I need to go and you know debrief myself somewhere <laughs> usually <laughs> over a coffee 
<laughs> or maybe a glass of wine, depending on what I'm doing. But I'm also going to, um, I'm meeting with my publisher. I'm, you know, like there's a whole bunch of stuff that I have to try and squeeze in when I go up to, when I'm allowed out of the house for a whole week. It's pretty exciting, really. Yes. Mm. Well, uh, speaking of how inspirational some kids are, mm. oh my God. I have been reading the submissions, the assignments the kids have been doing for your fantastic course, The Creative Writing Quest for Kids. And, of course, that is a course that's ideal for kids aged 9 to 14. The first round are going, first round of kids are going through it now. The next round starts Monday the 3rd of September. You don't have to start on the Monday, but it's around the, the week of the 3rd of September you can book into the next creative writing quest for kids. I have to say, I have been reading some of the um, uh, assignments, the the, 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 cre- the creative adventures that um, the kids are writing and sending in, and I am, everyone, all of us in the office are just gobsmacked at the talent and the imagination and how good some of these stories are. I, mean, I know, they're amazing, aren't they? Oh. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's really, it really brings a smile to my face and really bring, makes me very, very excited because I'm truly, uh, um, what's the word? I'm truly awestruck by some mm. of them. It's some of mm. how, how clever some of the stories are. So it's brilliant. So most of the people who are in the first rounds are about halfway through. So um, they're going to be coming. Uh, it's a 12-week program at the end of the program they will submit an 800 word story and you're going to provide personal feedback to on all of the stories so if anyone wants to check out the next round which starts um, at the beginning of september go to writercenter.com.au slash quest that's writercenter.com.au slash quest it's absolutely fantastic Every week, the kids have a um, exercise that they um, need to complete and submit, and they get feedback from from some of our tutors at the Australian Writers Centre. And at the very end, Alison gives personal feedback. But every week, there is a video or a couple of videos from Alison to guide these kids through this amazing story writing adventure. It's just fantastic. You know? It's really fun, and I've again been getting um, via social media like pictures of um, you know kids' parents you know tagging me in Instagram shots of their kids you know transfixed by the course or um, telling me how much the kids are loving the course, and you know that of course is um, amazing, amazingly good feedback for me because you you create something like this because you want it to be not just you know instructional and all of those sort of mm. things, but inspirational and. Um, hopefully, you know, a little bit entertaining as well. And obviously we're managing to tick all those boxes, which is brilliant. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's really good. So writercenter.com.au slash quest to check it out. Now, we want to give a big shout out to <laughs> someone who's left us a review on iTunes entitled So Ready. <laughs> and it's by Sal G. Writer from Australia. And Sal G. Writer says, I am so ready for Val and Al every week. Their podcast, So You Want to Be Writer, is the best. Their hilarious banter has me smiling every time I listen. Every week they provide invaluable learnings and industry knowledge to all us newbies blindly finding our way in the writing world. I listen in the car commuting to and from work, while cooking dinner, while walking along the beach, at the gym, or when lazy in bed. 
these ladies are part of my world, encouraging me along in my writing. Thank you, Val and Al, for consistently providing a top-shelf podcast. You ladies rock. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so cool. Thank you. Thank I love you the fact so that you're much. so ready. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. And if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. All right. Shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, Al? Please do. <laughs> I came across this little post, um, which we'll put on uh, in the show notes, which of course you can find at so you want to be a writer.com.au, and it's called Researchers Trained Robots to Write Poetry. It's on the it's from the New York Post, and um, researchers in Australia have actually partnered with the University of Toronto. Interesting collaboration, and they have developed an algorithm for artificial intelligence to write poetry. So this particular robot, basically, was fed nearly 3,000 sonnets as training and it was asked to spit out a poem. Now, you may or may not like this poem. It's very short, but anyway, um, I'll read it to you. Mm -hmm. With joyous gambles gay and still array, no longer when he twas while in his day, at first to pass in all delightful ways, around him, charming, and of all his days. <laughs> I mean, at least it rhymes, right? Oh, seriously? <laughs> so here's the interesting part. Like, it's, I probably wouldn't rate it as a poem myself. Um, mm. But here's the interesting part. They looked for volunteers and they gave them a mixture of human-written poems and uh, robot-written poems, and the readers were split 50-50. So it's only a matter of time before that proportion changes to 60-40, 70-30 or whatever as the AI gets more intelligent. Mm. Yeah, like who mm. knows? We might have um, poetry written by robots in the future. But you know what's interesting actually, speaking of poetry, is poetry is – I find poetry is a lot bigger in places like the US um, and the UK rather than in Australia. Do you because I do you remember like back in the day newspapers published poems. I remember the Saturday Herald would publish poems. I had a poem published in the newspaper once when I was eleven. Really? Mm. It was about <laughs> Anzac Day. It was hilarious. Mum saved it for me and gave oh. it to me when I turned thirty or something. She handed me over oh. my published work. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Um, yeah, it was pretty terrible. Um, basically, all I can say about this AI thing is that, like, there is a lot of bad poetry in the world, and I think that the AI is just adding to it. Like, to <laughs> me, it just seems like I think poetry is one of those things that, when it's done well, it's incredible. It's yeah. so amazing. Yeah. And I used to write poetry myself when I was younger. And when I first started going back to creative writing, it was one way that I started um, like journaling and, and stuff like that because I did a, a word, I did a, a creative writing course with Sue Wolf. And um, it was something that she did and that particular – that was a really interesting workshop for me because the way she approached writing was so different to the way that I had ever done it. And I was working as a journalist at the time, so the way that I was, you know, even approaching it at that stage. Um, and it, it was – like I found a lot of it to be just like I, I kind of rolled my eyes a lot, I admit, at the time um, just because it was so different. But in actual fact, I think I probably took a lot more from that course than I ever imagined because um, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the techniques that you use in writing of this notion of sort of like sort of 
gathering ideas you know randomly from things you hear and things you see and she she would she talked about how she would write things um she would listen to conversations on buses and she would write them down and she would continue to do this until she had a novel and i just remember sitting there thinking this is incredibly bizarre but in actual fact um i think that that's it's part of the process of what i do now it's probably not my entire process but it's definitely part of it but the poetry aspect of it was also something that she that she recommended. So I started writing poetry again when I was about, I think it was about 22, uh, maybe 24. And, um, oh, my God, I found the book recently when I was cleaning out my cupboards, as I do on a regular basis and put things back in. Um, and it, I was reading it and, like, most of it was absolutely dreadful. Like, most of it looked like it had been written by this robot. Um, <laughs> but there was a couple of things that I thought, you know what? With about another twenty-seven drafts, that might actually be <laughs> that might actually be something. But it's probably not something I'll ever do. I don't think I'll ever. I'll, I don't think I'd ever sort of have it in me to do twenty-seven drafts of a, yeah. of a you know fifty-eight word poem. It's not my it's yeah. not my thing. But I, I, I'm, I have great admiration for people who do it well because it's it's mm. it's like it's like writing words and music at the same time. You know, it's yes. almost like songwriting, but without without you know the music um because you have to get the music into the rhythm and into the into the words and into the metaphors and um and I think it's yeah I have so much admiration for people who do it well yeah I love reading good poetry it's just Mm. um it's it's yeah it's very uplifting Mm. um okay so let's move on to our next link which is something that you have about when should you hire an editor Oh, I just thought that this was quite an interesting post as far as um, it was on Writer's Digest, which is a great source of, you know, really um, hands-on instructional kind of posts. Um, and it was, uh, it's a, yeah, it was called When Should You Hire an Editor? Three Professional Editors Weigh In. Um, and I thought the reason it was quite interesting is it is a question that people do ask a lot and it's a question that comes up regularly in our Facebook community is, you know, at what stage do you need one? Like, do you get them right at the end, you know, when you think you're finished? Do you do get an editor in after the first draft? Um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I guess it comes back to um, I think the most useful thing about this post is the three questions that they ask at the top, which is um, before you hire an editor, you need to know why you want one. Um, so the first mm. question is, you know, when do you get one? Why are you hiring them? And I think mm. that is actually an incredibly – um, useful thing to know because if you're just hiring someone to kind of gloss up a, a piece to, to submit to something or to publish, um, mm-hmm. if you just want someone to proofread for you, copy, edit for you, yeah. then you clearly don't need them until towards the end. If, however, you want solid, constructive, structural feedback on your um, on your novel, then you I think you need to do at least a couple of drafts on it yourself. Yeah. And when you think that you are at the point where you think it's, you know, awesome when you're at yeah. that point of this is the best thing I've ever written, that's when you get someone to have a look at it for you because I think it's um, that's the point where someone's going to come back to you and you're going to discover it's probably not as awesome as you thought it was <laughs> um, and that's when you discover the work that you need to do to really to, to really get it up to scratch. But one of the interesting points that they do make in this um, – in this uh, article, this blog post, is that you you should exhaust all the free resources that you have first. If, you know, it's too early mm. to hire an editor once you've written your first draft and that's it. 
But if you can get someone else to read it for you, if you're in a writing group, if you can get feedback from some trusted people before you do your next – because I think you need to do at least two or three drafts before you you call in a professional. Um, And, of course, the other thing to consider too is if you're getting an editor in because you think you're you're going to indie publish – you need to make sure that you have you're probably going to need an editor a couple of times. I don't think oh, yes. that you should I don't think that you should just write this thing that you think it's amazing, get someone to proofread it and then, mm. you know, and then upload it to Amazon. I think you're probably going to need to look at at least one structural edit and then, you know, a perhaps a proofread or a copy edit edit at the end. But editing to create something amazing, you do actually need to outlay some money. Yeah, definitely. For an editor. Definitely. Don't you think? And I I think absolutely. And I think that um, what you've said about make sure you've done your draft two or three times is so important because there's actually a surprisingly large number of people who we get queries from who will say, I'm about halfway or over halfway. They're usually over the halfway mark of a manuscript and I'd like to send it to an editor to see that I'm on track. And I'm like, no. Because the editor needs to read the whole thing or you need to, if you're halfway, you might want to send that, but you need to actually have the entire rest plotted out if you're actually wanting a a structural edit on it. And even then, it's not going to be as valuable if um, compared to if you wait till you finish writing the entire manuscript. It's And, and I think people also need to set the expectation, um, no matter how fantastic or how much hard work you've put into a manuscript, that once you send it to a structural editor, it's going to come back with feedback and that feedback yeah. might be quite significantly huge. So if you set yeah. that expectation and you get significant feedback as in you need to make significant changes, then you're not going to be bereft and disappointed that you have to do all this stuff. And if it doesn't come back with that, hey, bonus, right? But yeah. it's when people just think, oh, it's going to come back and they're going to confirm that it's fantastic, that is when people lo- get disappointed and lose momentum and then put it in the bottom drawer for, you know, the next five years or whatever. Yeah. So, so, so important. The other thing to I consider think. too is how to find the right editor for your book and this is yeah. something that comes up over and over again as well. And I think, um, you know, you need to have a look at um, what, what, edit- what services editors actually um, offer whether or not yeah. they're offering what you want. But if they're specialising in copy editing and proofreading, don't engage them for a structural edit because it's yeah. going to be not what you need. Um, you want to um, basically – one of the best ways to find an editor, um, you want someone who actually understands what you're writing, the genre that you're writing in. You need to look for someone who who, who does um, – you know, because we, we interviewed Nicola O'Shea uh, on an earlier podcast episode. She does a lot of – commercial women's fiction so if you're writing that kind of stuff she's brilliant for that you know that sort of area but she even says herself that you know literary fiction is not really her thing so you want if you're writing literary fiction then you want someone who where it is their thing you know that's Mm. that's one of the things to look for um we've done a couple of different um interviews with editors actually so I might put the link to those in the show notes once I find them um the other thing to do is of course is ask around like other writers who they've used would they recommend them um you need to look at what your budget is but there's a whole range of different things and you will also need to think about the fact that good editors are booked up months and months and months in advance so you know like unless you're happy to rest rest your manuscript for you know six to twelve months get yourself booked in and, and that, the brilliant thing about that too is it gives you a deadline to work towards yes 
Yes. Yes. That's that's a very good point. And I do Mm. think the biggest mistake people make, and I was talking to a guy the other day and he has finished, he finished his manuscript and then he paid immediately for a um, copy editor. He didn't bother with the structural edit. And that's just the hugest mistake, especially if you've never published before, if you've never Mm. it's your first novel. You have to, if you really want a good book, you should pay for a structural edit first, which means in case there are some readings who are unclear, the structural editor does not look at, you know, commas and full stops or punctuation and stuff like that. I mean, if they look at it, that's just incidental. They're looking at literally the structure of the book on whether it makes sense, on whether things are in the right order, on whether there's the right pace and tension, on whether, you know, some chapters should be moved or some scenes should not even be there, that sort of thing. They're not looking at the line-by-line, you know, proofreading or anything. They're looking at a much macro, much more macro view. So big piece of advice is definitely if you're going for an editor, go for a structural editor first. After after you make all those changes and you feel that it's the best possible you know, place it can be, then then you can go for a copied editor. But sometimes people get the structural editor, make all the changes, and then get another structural edit to make sure that they're on the you know, they've mm. gone gone down the right path as well. Mm. Mm. All right, let's move on to you have another link, How I Got an Agent. Oh, I just wanted to share this one. This is just um, we discussed last episode um, there was 11 authors talking about how they got an agent, which was a US-based article, and I just wanted to share that, you know, literally like a minute and a half after we had that conversation, um, Irma Gold, who's doing some great things on her blog, um, she published a a blog post called How I Got an Agent, which is um, basically three – Australian authors talking about how they secured their agents. So I just wanted to draw your attention to it. I'm going to put the link in the show notes um, just to say like that there is, this is an Australian specific thing. So if you're an Australian looking for an Australian author, you may wish to have a look at this one as well. Awesome. All right. So we'll put the link in the show notes, which will be at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. So our giveaway this week, we have three copies of the, the Biographer's Lover. The Biographer's Lover is a novel about Australia's complex relationship with memory and the role gender plays in the way we represent not only national myths but our private versus our public selves. So that might sound a bit highfalutin, but (laughs) why has no one heard of Edna Cranmer? When a young woman is hired to write the life of an unknown artist from Geelong, she thinks it will be just another quick commission paid by a rich, grieving family obsessed with their own history. But Edna Cranmer was not a privileged housewife with a paintbrush. Edna's work spans decades. Her soaring images of red dirt, close interiors and distant jungles have the potential to change the way the nation views itself. Edna could have been an official war artist. Did she choose to hide herself away or were there people who didn't want her to become famous? As the biographer is pulled into Edna's life, she's confronted with the fact that how she tells Edna's past will affect her own future. This elegant and engrossing novel explores how we value and celebrate art and artists' lives. All right. So if you want a copy to win a copy of The Biographer's Lover, go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, entries close on the 20th of August. Uh, But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there'll be another book there or another prize there for you to for you to win so writercenter.com.au slash win so now al are you ready for the word of the week so ready val 
Couldn't be more ready. Do I sound enthusiastic enough? You do. You don't sound fair to middling at all. Not at all. So this week's word of the week is putative. That's P-U-T-A-T-I-V-E, putative. Sounds a bit like a cross between a potato and punitive, but it has nothing to do with either. Putative means supposed or reputed. So you might say the putative liaison between those two celebrities is being reported in the tabloids tomorrow. Putative. Putative. That's a cute word, huh? Oh, so cute. <laughs> I've heard. I have to say, I've heard of that one though, Val. Like that's have that's you? not new. That's not a new to me okay. word. No, right. it's not. Yeah. Right. I don't know that I'd use it in a sentence like you know that. But yeah, no. I'm, I'm all Sometimes over that it's one. It's hard to you know put the words into. Sentences. I I, know. I try. <laughs> no, you do. You're doing a splendid job. Okay. Thank you. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Our writer in residence is Paul French, and I had a cracker of a time chatting to Paul. His most recent book is called City of Devils: The Two Men Who Ruled the Underworld of Old Shanghai. Now, he's a non-fiction author who previously wrote Midnight in Peking, which became a New York Times bestseller, won a whole slew of awards, and is now being made into an international miniseries by the same production company who made Spooks and Broadchurch and Life on Mars. So Paul is um, somebody who is quite an expert in all things China, uh, but this particular book is kind of like... Um, historical nonfiction, true crime, and it is um, uh, enthralling. So let's have a chat to Paul French. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. Well, thank you for having me. Now, your book, your latest book, is City of Devils, The Two Men Who Ruled the Underworld of Old Shanghai. Now... For those listeners who haven't got their hands on it yet, can you tell them a little bit about what it's about? Well, it's a literary non-fiction in that it is a true story, and all the people and all the places and all the events are real. It's set in Shanghai through the late 1930s and early 1940s, in that time when the city was really the most wide-open city on Earth. You didn't need a passport to go there. It was a Chinese city, but it had also had a, a large foreign population. It was indeed an, an international settlement a treaty. So, that the world's fourth biggest city, nearly four million people. Um, a lot of Russian refugees who had come after the 1917 revolution. A lot of Jewish refugees who were coming from Europe to escape fascism. And, and, and I tell the story of two uh, foreigners there, an Austrian and an American, who set out to build Asia's largest ever casino. They did manage to do that, but of course all of this is against the backdrop of the deteriorating situation in, in China and the Japanese attack uh, on, on the country. Uh, that, so that's the story, and it, it's really all about Shanghai, uh, that um, incredibly fascinating and, and both glamorous, but also for so many uh, desperately poor periods mm. of time. Now, it's, it is a fascinating period in time, and this isn't your first book that is set in Asia. You, your previous book is Midnight in Peking, How the Murder of a Young Englishwoman Haunted the Last Days of Old Peking. 
became a New York Times bestseller, so uh, I think it did pretty well. And you've also um, written quite a number of other books set in China. Where did that interest, because obviously you're from uh, England, where did that interest in China come from and how did it start? Well, on one level, it came from family connections. My, my great-grandfather was with the Royal Navy in Shanghai in the 1920s uh, for a few years. Um, so that sort of excited my uh, interest in this. In fact, when I, when I was very young, I used to go to their house in uh, North London. This is now going to date me, but in the sort of 1970s. Mm. And uh, my great-grandfather would be sitting there who had joined the Navy in the First World War, after it literally and so on, and signed on uh, this day after. And down each arm, and I'm a sort of you know five, six-year-old kid, down each arm you had these massive dragon tattoos that went right up and over his back, and the heads met down between his shoulder blades. They were quite incredible. And this was wow. in the days when, in the days when really only kind of uh, uh, soldiers, sailors, and criminals had tattoos. Right nowadays, mm. everyone has tattoos, but, but then not many people did. And this was a very striking one. And he had it done in Shanghai, and he'd always say. Shanghai and then weep, to which my great-grandmother would slap him around the head. Um, and I never really understood why she did that. Though, of course, later on, I realized that he must have had a high old time uh, there, as, as did most of the guys in the navies that went there. So there was that interest. And then later on, um, at university, I did languages, and I did uh, Mandarin Chinese, and also went to Hudan University in Shanghai for language training uh, for a couple of years in the, in the late 1980s. And then um, went back in the 1990s and, and lived there for well, well over a decade, working and writing about China, and always with this fascination of the foreign community that had been in Beijing, in Shanghai, and elsewhere in China before 1949, before the, the, the Second World War. But that group of people that we've in some ways forgotten about a little bit, um, mm. sort of always fascinated me. Their interaction with China, with the Chinese, with each other, the fact that not all of them were diplomats and businessmen and missionaries. And a lot of my work is about the ones who went as uh, as uh, escaping the long arm of the law back in their own country uh, and became criminals as well in, in, in Shanghai particularly and also in Beijing. So that sort of world, that's my little niche. That's the same kind of area that I'm really interested in. It is a very specific niche, but obviously it did stem from some kind of childhood fascination. But then you went, as you said, to go and work and write in Asia. I understand that you uh, co-founded a research firm. So you were uh, doing a different kind of writing than this. So was the intention, did you always want to become a writer or did you initially think, I'm going to go into research? And how did your career tra trajectory unfold and what were the intentions with your career initially? Oh, well, um, I didn't really have any career intentions. I think if you studied Chinese in the 1980s, you know, when, when China was pretty much a closed country, still quite very communist, um, you know, and if, if you took Chinese rather than Japanese, you were considered somewhat stupid, really, um, you know, because the future was going to be Japanese at that point. It wasn't going to be Chinese. Uh, although, of course, all that changed, and, and all of us Chinese speakers became rather saleable commodities later on. Um, but like most people who want to write, I and um, uh, basically, uh, we thought about doing market research. China was starting to open up in the early 1990s. 
it was starting to become a market for Western goods. Western retailers were moving in, everything from supermarkets to luxury fashion. And we thought there might be a market among different companies and banks and things to understand what was going on with the Chinese consumer, which really wasn't a term that we talked about much. The real reason, of course, was that um, studying consumers allows you to nose around in people's lives, allows you to try and find out what they're buying. You know, what are you spending your money on, Valerie? When you get your paycheck, what do you spend it on? What, what does your house look like? Um, what, what do you eat? Where do you want to go on holiday? What, what, you know, what car do you want to drive? Uh, what do you like to wear? Um, and all of those questions were really ways of uh, nosing around into the lives of Chinese people, which is really mm. kind of what we wanted to do. We wanted to try and get under the skin of a country and a culture like China, merging from you know, a long way from home, if you like, but also merging from uh, with Deng Xiaoping out of this kind of uh, hard times of Maoism and Tiananmen Square mm. and so on. Uh, this was this was really an, a fascinating thing to do to try and find out who are all these billion people over there. You know? What do yes. they think? What are they? going to do and they've got money for the first time what are they going to do with it you know what, what, what are they like what are they into so, so that was why we did uh, market research yes but an incredible incredible way to root around in people's lives yes but it's the priority to discover more about people's lives or was it to write or was the writing just a byproduct Oh, no, I also wanted to write, but it, but it also gave me a chance to go and investigate all these things. So yeah. I was living in Shanghai, and so the ability to, to sort of go in and out of all the old buildings there, I mean, art, Shanghai is still an art deco uh, treasure trove of art. Yeah. Uh, there were so many old buildings there, uh, although they've been, many have been knocked down, unfortunately, since. But and what I wanted was something that allowed me to, my, my writing is very research-driven, so uh, I really wanted something that gave me an excuse to go out and say, oh, look at this department store. It was a department store in the 1920s. Now it's become a department store again. Or, you know, so really, I was always thinking about those things and always trying to write and make notes and research. I just obviously needed something that could uh, pay the rent for a while. Yes. And so when you first – can you cast your mind back to when you first – got there and you finally reached this exotic place that you had heard about for so long from your grandfather, did it meet your expectations? What was that feeling? Can you remember the first time you went to Shanghai then? Oh, oh, yes, very well. And I, and I was, of course, in two minds because uh, my contemporary hat, if you like, told me that this was a very difficult place. This was a place that had had a very troubled Political forty years coming through Maoism, and, and when I, when I, you know, when I was there as well, just before and just after, after the great tragedy and catharsis of, of the Tiananmen Square incidents. Mm. So you know that that was really in my mind. And this was this was a country emerging from very deep communism in, in the way that a few years before uh, Eastern Europe and, and with the breakup of the Soviet Union, it was very unclear at that point what would happen, whether it would uh, you know, descend into chaos, whether there would be some sort of revolution, whether it would move to democracy, or what would happen. And I don't think anybody predicted it correctly. Um, but it was fascinating because it was, it, in Shanghai particularly, it was as if a dust sheet had been thrown over what was one of the most modern and exciting cities in the world mm. in about 1949, or if you like, really in 1941 with the Japanese invasion, because of mm. course then the city was occupied for seven years, then there was a civil war for a few years, and then, then the communist revolution. It was as if someone had thrown a dust sheet over it, 
and then you know we were there as they slowly pulled back the stuff sheet and we discovered all the treasures underneath mm. and and we watched all these people suddenly have an incredibly new life and lots of things that people like most of us have always taken for granted uh you know buying your own house choosing mm. your own job going out for the evening to eat, all of these things were suddenly new. You know, a lot of the work I was involved in was things like new cookbooks that were coming out that showed people what to do with an aubergine, for instance. <laughs> because people have cooked with aubergines in the 30s and 30s, and then because of the priority of getting enough food for everyone, slightly minor things, vegetables like aubergine had disappeared. Yeah. So all of a sudden they were coming back. And, and people had sort of, there had been a generational shift. People had forgotten how to cook with aubergines, you know, <laughs> things like that. And all of a sudden, people were experiencing Western food, Italian restaurants coming in, you know, sort of yes. not necessarily good things, but, you know, in came Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's. And how do people take to this? Things that I had grown up with. Yep. So you were there certainly at a time of really dynamic change. Um, the you So you wrote for a number of different publications and magazines and newspapers and then Midnight in Cahoon, which became huge. So tell me, before we get to the current book, what was the genesis of that? What made you interested in that story? And what made you think, oh, I'll write a book about it? <laughs> well, I've been, I've been researching the history of Shanghai particularly, but also Beijing uh, and, and foreigners there. And I had written uh, several books the university press, it's Hong Kong University Press, on, mm. on things that would interest you if you were very, very keen on China and, and that mm. kind of history. And, and then I just thought, well, I could go on doing this for a long time because there's so much material and it, it's such a great area. Uh, but what I really would like to do is, is, is take these, this period of the 1930s and 40s in China, this incredible political period, this incredible point in the history of China, uh, which also had this foreign involvement that we've forgotten about, this community and find a story that somehow took it to a much larger audience. Mm. Um, because at the moment I'm writing for lots of people who are all very interested in this, and they write books that I read, and I write books that they read, but it's a small little group, and yeah. uh, that's fine, but, but maybe I can take this to somewhere bigger. And um, through my research, I've come across lots of interesting things, and, I, and one of them was the, the unsolved murder of a 19-year-old English girl in... Beijing in 1937, around the time that the Japanese invaded the city and occupied it. So it was never solved. It also fascinated me because it was the only time, as far as I know, that because there was a British detective, a Scotland Yard detective who happened to be in China at the time, that he investigated it in conjunction with the head of the China, the Beijing Detective Bureau, obviously a Chinese detective. And they worked together to try and solve this. Um, so the historical period was right fascination was right. And I guess I was also intrigued about the possibility that you might be able to, with modern technology and archives and things, discover things that weren't known at this rather chaotic time. Right. So I might be able to find something else. And even if I couldn't, you know, there's, uh, I think actually it's Stalin. And I, I honestly, I don't normally quote Stalin, but he <laughs> said, um, uh, one, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. <laughs> and I felt that um, I felt that Pamela, the girl's murder, was at the time seen as a terrible, awful thing. But it was it, it presaged the Japanese attack on China, which of course 
went on for a decade and involved millions of deaths mm. uh, across the country um, that we don't always fully appreciate outside China. You know, that, that's the statistic. Um, mm. Pamela was the kind of tragedy. Um, and it was seen very much that way at the time. So I thought, this is good. Let's pull at this thread and, and see what we get. And I was very, very lucky and came across all sorts of papers and archives and, and things that hadn't been known before. Um, and so I was able to put the book together. And I think that also took me into this world of crime writing. It's written again in a literary non-fiction style. Mm. So, so it's all from archives, but it's in the style of a novel or a crime fiction. Uh, mm. It's also true crime, and, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm now told that we've been going through this slight golden age in true crime writing yeah. at the moment. What, what was a fairly fairly uh, trashy genre has become a kind of uh, more interesting genre with ro- lots of writers like Eric Larson and David Graham and uh, people like that. And I, so I found myself here, and I think that if you want to get all the smells and bells and whistles of old China, mm. plus good stories characters that people can relate to and so on. Um, and also my sort of specialist area of knowledge. By combining that with the style of a crime novel and people being attracted to true crime again, that I could reach a, a multiplier of audiences. And, and that's yes. what takes you, I think, from reaching a certain number of people. Once you once you start crossing genres and crossing audiences, that, that that's when you kind of... It wasn't really calculated. I, honestly, it wasn't. But... Um, you know, that I realize now is how you start reaching much bigger audiences. Yes. It wasn't calculated, but it was the perfect storm in, in your circumstance. Well, I think it was, you know, I'd always sat in planes and, and before going to sleep and read crime novels. I wasn't addicted mm. to them, but I enjoyed yeah. them. I thought the world of crime, crime fiction was a fun genre. Um, I, I was slightly aware of the, the rise of good true crime books. There used to be this what people said, true crime equals waste of time, right? You know? And I was aware of how bad the true crime shelf was in bookshops as anyone else. But I had read things like um, uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil yeah. and uh, Eric, Lars- Eric Larson's uh, was it the White City. You know? and, and there was this good uh, true crime around. And I also remembered people that I, I had admired before, like Truman Capote's In Cold mm. Blood is, is mm. a great example of a the previous great true crime book. So I, I wasn't so I wasn't wary of true crime. I thought it was quite interesting. The crime fiction was interesting. The trick I think was to try and pack the incredibly complicated Chinese politics of the nineteen thirties. Mm-hmm. And the idea that there were these foreigners there, which a lot of readers might not be aware of, um, and somehow get that across to people. Yes. But as you say, yes, I mean a, a perfect storm in terms of audience reception. Mm, did you ever anticipate it would be as successful as it was? Uh, no, I didn't. Although, I mean, of course, it would be churlish to say that I wasn't aware, uh, as I say, of true crime and the popularity of crime fiction. And, of course, I'm always aware that, you know, in Australia, in Europe, in America, China is and remains this fascination, um, mm. above and beyond just doing a bit of business there, but people are fascinated by it. More, more and more people have visited more and more people have studied there or spent time there or have kids that are going there to study mm. or whatever. You know, China is part of our consciousness, and so an awareness of Chinese history is part of our consciousness. But Chinese history can be quite hard work, and the books yes. on Chinese history can be very, very thick. They're doorstoppers, usually, because there's a lot of history. There's 5,000 years of history in China. It is. It's quite complicated. 
Well, um, you're fascinated so by Yes. Well, you're fascinated by a very, very specific era of the of its modern history. When you were researching these books then, what kind of material like when you first thought of uh, when you first thought of your story, what where were your go to places? What sort of institutions or or archives did you go to? Oh well I um I initially went to the newspapers. There was a very vital uh, English-language newspaper uh, industry in, in Beijing and Shanghai in the 1930s, and they covered everything. Unfortunately, it was quite tabloidy. It didn't like to cover murders and crimes and celebrity uh, with all the salaciousness that, uh, that those of us like me who live in countries that are suffused with tabloid newspapers are used to. Um, so um, that was very helpful. Um, I was very lucky as well that, of course, uh, we had uh, the British and the Americans and everybody else had uh, uh, consulates and embassies that recorded all sorts of information about everyone, particularly their, their rather errant criminal nationals. Who were in those <laughs> there, were, there, yeah. there were watch lists of suspicious people, uh, as there still are, with uh, you know, British embassies and consulates all around the world still keep their list of suspicious Brits uh, in their territory. Um, and um, so, so, so that was there as well. Um, I was very lucky when I started Midnight in Peking. It was a, the story of a girl who was 19 in 1937, mm. and I did manage to find about about a dozen people around the world who were still alive then. Only a wow. couple of them would still be now who were who were at school with, with Pamela. She, for various reasons, she was a couple of years older than her than her cohort at school. So people who were 16 in 1937, and they were still around, and they were very chatty. They all had superb memories, and although they'd spread around the world from Australia to Canada to the United States to, mm. to little cottages in Oxfordshire, uh, pretty much all of them had Skype, which, which sort of revolutionises the uh, oral yeah. history process. Right, and so this there was no way there was no way I was going to get to everybody. It's the same as City of Devils, mm. you know. The, the two, the two biggest communities of the Russians and Jews who were in Shanghai in the 1930s, the ones who got American passports, you know, before the communist revolution, after the war, most of them went around the west coast of America in the San Francisco area. So there's a large community there. The others got British passports, but they were told, you have a British passport, but you can't come to the United Kingdom because it's after mm. the Second World War. We've got a because of the bombing, we have a big enough problem housing people that live there at the moment. But you know what? You can go to Australia. So right. you want to find, uh, if you want to find the old Shanghai Russians and the old Shanghai Jewish community, just look around Bondi and Sydney and places. That, that's yeah. where most of them kind of set. Right. So you were fortunate enough to be able to speak to people who actually went to school with Pamela. But in this book, we've got Jack and Joe, who are the two main guys, in City of Devils, were you also able to speak to people who knew them? Well, I, I did find a few people. There's, there's one woman I managed to find who lives in the Midwest of America, and she married a Shanghai gangster who was in his 40s oh. in 1940, when she was 17. She married, she married him. And she got to America after the war, and uh, now is a elderly lady uh, 
in, in the Midwest of America, and I was able to, to talk to her. Uh, one wonderful lady, reading, one of the things about books like Midnight and Thin, and then doing this, having a niche where you work on the same sort of thing, different stories, is people get in touch with you. And after Midnight and Thin, I had a lovely lady in San Francisco who said, I don't know if you're interested in Shanghai. She didn't know that I was more fascinated in Shanghai than I was in Beijing. She said, I don't know if you're interested, but I used to be a chorus line dancer. She was a, a white Russian, a Russian, and uh. as they called them, as opposed to red Russians rather than any other you know, white Russians. And she said, my children aren't really interested. My grandchildren aren't interested. Would you like all these photographs of me dancing and backstage uh. with everyone and all this? Well, it turned out that she danced in chorus lines at nightclubs that I was going to in City of Devils, and she sent it all to me. And she was, what was she then? This was a couple of years ago. She was 102 at that point. Um, which I can tell you, by the way, if anyone tells you that working in show business, chain smoking, eating fatty foods, um, you know, and, and all the rest of it is bad for you, there's a lot of people in these, you'd be surprised how long these people live. Uh, they never went, they, they never spent a day in a gym, they never exercised a day in their life. They, they passive smoked massively working in nightclubs. They had the trauma of being refugees and emigres from their country. And yet, I think, and, unless they got sh- shot or stabbed, pretty much all of them, male and female, made it at least to their late 80s, early 90s, if not yeah. to, to, to their hundreds. It's quite yeah. phenomenal. Um, so everything we're told now about all this is completely wrong, obviously. Um, <laughs> and you should, ju- you should just... Go ahead and eat as much fats and carbs as you want. Smoke a pack of cigarettes. They drank like fishes. Wow. Um, Anyway, unfortunately, she died before I was really able to get all of her stories. But she did send me all of her photos. So so people were still around. And Joe Farron, who was one of the main characters, Mm. was from uh, uh, Jewish and from uh, Vienna, Austria. Mm. Uh, he went to Shanghai in the 1920s as a dancer, not, not as a refugee from fascism. But trying to track down his family, I went everywhere trying to track them down. And of course, mostly in Vienna, in Austria. And I thought, I know how this story ends. I know what's going to happen. This is that this story is going to end at a concentration camp. They're, they're Jewish. They're in Vienna. Where else does this story end? And then out of the blue, because I always blog about what I'm working about, which I think is a good tip for people doing this sort of work, which is don't, don't uh, keep it all secret and hidden away. Share, share what you're doing because you'll be, everybody now is doing the who do you think you are thing on their yeah. families. And yeah. people will come, people will come out of the woodwork. And this is exactly what happened to me. I got contacted by um, a lovely lady called Jackie Mills who lived not a hundred miles down the road from me in a small village in Gloucestershire. And she said, um, he was, uh, Joe Farron was my great uncle. He was the black sheep of the family. We knew he went to, we knew he went to, you know, the Far East, to Asia, but we never knew what really happened to him. You know, but his oh. brother, his brother managed to get on one of the last trains out of Vienna before the Nazis arrived. He right. got to England. He got refugee status in England. Mm. And he, he was sent to the West Country of England, where there were less people, and given the uh, West Country of England sales route for Underwood typewriters. And oh. um, <laughs> he, he stayed there, sold typewriters, he, he proudly claimed to be the first guy to sell a word processor in Cornwall, and oh um, uh, built his family, and, and they lived down there in Gloucester. So I was searching everywhere. 
across Central Europe. This story will get, will end up, unfortunately, tragically, it'll end at Auschwitz, it'll end at Dachau, or somewhere like that. And it ended in a, the sweetest village you could imagine in Gloucester. Wow, what an adventure. Now, how did you come across the story of Jack and Joe? Were you in Shanghai at the time? Because they, they weren't, I mean, they, Jack was from America, as you said, Joe's from Vienna. Well, how did you come across their story and then make you, and then decide, oh, this is going to be my next book? Well, it's whether or not you can get enough sources. There are certainly no end of um, salacious and criminal stories from Shanghai mm. at that time. It was, it was, you know, what they called Chicago and the Huangpu, the, the river that runs through Shanghai is the Huangpu. It was known as Chicago and the Huangpu at the time. Um, the thing was that uh, Jack and Joe ended up falling foul of the law. So there were police records. There were also uh, court records because they were taken to court. So once I, I, they also ran a business, so which was this giant casino. So there was advertising and there were business records. So once I knew that I could get court transcripts, once I knew I could get police records and the intelligence service records, because they were tied up in all sorts of business, the U.S. Justice Department was interested in them, British intelligence, which I think really ran the intelligence services in Shanghai, was interested in them. Mm. Um, I, I knew that there was a chance that I could get enough documentation and enough archival work, and that because they ran this nightclub, people, there might be enough photographs and enough images out there as well, because images and photographs are a very important part of what I do, because I'm trying to tell you a story in a novel, but I want you to always... I want you to immerse yourself in that world, but I want you to know that it's real. So, as with the Pamela Werner murder, you have to see a picture of her. And to, you know, and with Joe and Jack, amazing stories, but you have to see what they look like. And to me, you know, truth really is stranger than fiction, and, and oh, it yeah. becomes more immediate. And, and I think that really can lift the book into into becoming quite an experience, hopefully, yeah. more so than perhaps than a novel, which is not to denigrate fiction writers. It's just to say that when you read amazing stuff. And then you see pictures of it. It's mm. kind of incredible to think these people walk the same streets as us. Yes. So I knew there were enough, that there was enough there. If I could spend enough time, be diligent enough to dig it all out, I'd have enough to recreate their story, but, but to be able to back up everything that I was saying. So can you give us an indication of uh, timelines? Like, did you do a whole heap of research and then start writing? Were you writing as you as you were researching? Can you just give us some time frames on how long it, basically it took to put to put together? Well, yeah, I mean, um, well, long enough that it would dissuade a lot of people from attempting a similar project. <laughs> I was looking at the I was looking at the notebook that I was looking at the other day, that I started the other day. And it's got the sticker, the guest visitor sticker from Hong Kong University Library, where I, I know I discovered the story, and it was 2010. So, oh. yeah, I mean, these things take a long time, which again is why I, I've never really been able to understand writers who do one big history or true crime project and then start on something completely random in another country or another period. I mean, for me, all, all of the stuff I do, which includes, you know, short stories, even academic articles occasionally and things like that, is all about this period. So everything's grist to the mill, right? Every, everything comes in useful. You've just got to organize yeah. it. But yeah, that, that, I first came across their, their story in the newspapers in 2010, um, right around the time that I was writing Midnight Thing, and I thought, oh, this is mm. the next book. And then, oh, you um, thought that immediately? Yeah, 
I, I thought there's enough stuff here, and these guys, there's enough stuff for me to research, and I want to do Shanghai because, you know, yeah. Shanghai is the, the biggest, craziest place at that time, and if people are willing to read about Peking at that time, they'll definitely be willing to read about Shanghai. Yes. So, with it being set in Shanghai, you really do paint a picture of Shanghai, and obviously I and you weren't there at the time because this was the 1930s and 40s. What did you do to – and it feels really real. You are completely transported into this whole other world that's exotic yet strangely familiar because, you know, the, these people are kind of like people you'd know. What did you – did you have any particular techniques or or strategies or approaches in order to make that world come alive on the page? Well, there's a number of things. I mean, first of all, I I try and research everything about that world. That world. Alan First, who I think is a fantastic espionage novelist, who always writes about France mostly, just before the the, the Nazi occupation. So he's also in that same problem that I have, if you like, because you know the history. You know the Second World War is coming. Mm. It's just a question of who who, uh, who gets it out alive. So it's not so much a who done it as a how they did it. Mm. Um, and he said, you research everything about the, the time and the period and the place you want. You throw it all against the wall and you see what sticks. And I think that's very, very true. So, I mean, I also do blogs and other things, but... Um, I, I research everything. So if you look at my blog, for instance, which is chinarhyming.com, not, not to plug it, but just because you might find it useful to see, um, I, I do things about what radio shows were on in Shanghai at that time, what department stores were, were doing, what kind of shops there were, um, who was visiting as a tourist, what hotels people stayed in, um, just everything you can imagine. I've even done blog posts on street furniture, if you know what I mean, what the road signs look like, what, the, mm. what, what, what everything looked like, what the weather was like, um, what other events were happening. I tried very hard to do all of that, what people were eating, what perfumes people were wearing, all of that fascinates me. And I know more about that than I really need to know, certainly more than <laughs> you need to read. Um, but, you know, some of it stays with you. So, you know, those little things that hopefully give you atmosphere, Yes. Um, you know, uh, someone in the in the Guardian newspaper talking about this once called them the sheep droppings of literature. I'm not sure I like that expression, but you know, just that <laughs> that little you know, you you know, there's sheep in the field when you see the sheep droppings. <laughs> yes, uh, you, you don't need you know, just those little things that tell you something. So the smells, the bells, the whistles, you know, the sights and sounds, what the weather was like, uh, things like that. And Shanghai has some very intense weather. Um, those things, I think, are really important, and I try to put a lot of that into the book. Mm. Um, the other thing, I think, is to try and capture the language at the time, mm. uh, which is very difficult. Now, I think to write something, say, in the language of 1930s is, is quite difficult to do. Shanghai, without blowing my own trumpet, is probably more difficult to do because it was a Tower of Babel. Right? Mm. It's a Chinese city mm. that, speaks, that speaks probably that has its own dialect, but with people speaking probably a dozen other Chinese dialects. On top of that, you've got people speaking English and this strange hybrid pidgin English that was used between Chinese and foreigners sometimes. Um, you've got people speaking, in, in this book particularly, Yiddish, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, what else have you got, German, 
you know, there, there are all these languages, oh, Russian, of course, yes. um, and there are all these languages being, being spoken, and yet everyone is finding a, a common language. So you've got Yiddish-speaking Austrians that use words of German. You've got Russians who, uh, uh, sorry, not German, of uh, Chinese. You've got uh, Russians who, in order to communicate, speak some Japanese. So you've got this going on. And, and so therefore, I suppose it's reading a thousand memoirs and, and, and the self-publishing industry now is very useful to me because everybody, as I say, is writing their memoirs. They're not always great literature. But they yeah. all have little nuggets of information for the researcher, right. for, the, for the writer. In them. Just an address, a house, what you called your servants, how you spoke with the, the Chinese butcher on the corner when you were a Jewish refugee, you know, that kind of thing is, is, yes. is fascinating. So basically, that's what I do for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> and then um, you, you try and immerse yourself in it. And I think on top of that, you can throw pictures, images, maps, just anything else that can give people mm. a sense of the, of the period, of the time, and just to allow them to hopefully immerse them and a good story to keep them moving. And then, you know, hopefully they can find themselves immersed in the period. And, and I don't so, think people should worry about whether or not people will find it difficult to read because I, mm. I thought that I thought quite long and hard about that and decided to just go for it. And so far, people have kind of been very kind about, about that and have, and have done the work themselves rather than expecting me to do the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you obviously enjoy researching. Uh, and it's something that is fascinating to you. And I, is your blog then, does your blog serve a purpose of basically collating the points of interest that you research and it effectively becomes your library or filing system and you don't have another one or, or is your blog yes, for no, some other purpose? My, my blog and my Instagram account and, and various other things are like aid memoirs. You know, that photo that I can't remember where I put or that, that person I came across, I write them up very swiftly and stick them on blogs or, or post those pictures and then I know where they are and it comes in useful all the time. Even to Someone contacted me the other day about where was the Shanghai Municipal Sanatorium in the 1930s and I thought, ooh, I can't remember where that was and I Googled it and top of the list came my, uh, my blog post where I'd actually, back in 2009, gone and kind of taken a photo of the old building. So, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, you do forget things, but it creates this map. And I should say, quite a few years ago, 2009 again or something, I, um, I did a book called The Old Shanghai A to Z, which is all the roads mm. of old Shanghai are still there. They've just changed all their names since the revolution. And I set out on this sort of stupid I don't know, psychogeography, historical research project to walk every street of Shanghai, um, <laughs> which, you know, in a, it, it, in a Shanghai summer, in, in the oh. middle of a building frenzy, in the middle of a building frenzy for, for the World Expo the next year in Shanghai. It, it was, it was a completely stupid thing to do. But I think I did track down all of the streets, the old names, the new names, what used to be on the streets and what, what was still left on the, on the streets. Mm. So there's also that sense of, you know, you, you've walked as much as you can. You've walked those streets. You've stood in the lobby of those buildings. You, you've yeah. found all of those places. Um, and of course, Shanghai has gone through an incredible building frenzy in the last 20 years. But, but lots, lots does remain, particularly the standout Art Deco uh, stuff along the, the bum, you know, the riverfront and, and yes. various other, and the old French, con French concession that you can still wander around and, and get lost in. So, 
yeah, I mean, again, these projects take a long time, and you have to, you can't really expect other people to become immersed in something that you haven't immersed yourself in. Yeah. In the way that you can't imagine anyone to get wrapped up in a plot that you yourself haven't got wrapped up. Mm-hmm. And so, what are you working on next or now, which will, you know, probably your next book? Well, I, I, I yeah, I'd, I'd go to stay in Shanghai. I'm kind of fascinated. Yeah. That City of Devils really ends on January the eighth in Shanghai, which was the day of Pearl Harbor, which, yeah. as well as being obviously the attack on Pearl Harbor and Britain and America going to war with Japan, was also the day that. Shanghai was completely invaded and overtaken by uh, the Japanese. So that's really where this story ends, because mm-hmm. th- that world ends. Mm-hmm. And then Shanghai is occupied until the summer of 1945, and then has these three or four years where um, it is once again a city, but a, but, a, but a faded glory of a city. All that neon and jazz and fast cars and so on. It's a city that's had a terrible occupation. Being kept afloat by American supplies in the United Nations. Um, all around it, as before with the Japanese, is now the civil war between the nationalists and the communists. Chiang Kai shek is getting ready to debunk to Taiwan. Uh, the People's Republic of China is about to be formed. And those 130,000 Russians, those 40,000 Jewish refugees, all have to go somewhere. They all need to get passports. And it was a time of black marketeering, it was a time of another crime wave. It was a time of desperation for people trying to get out as well. Wealthy Chinese, capitalist Chinese, those Chinese linked to the nationalist regime, they all had to get out as well because they knew there wasn't going to be much life for them once the revolution was happening. So it was, it was a chaotic time and very much I feel like um, the elevator pitch, as they call it, would be kind of Graham Greene's The Third Man comes to, comes uh-huh. to Shanghai. But I, I want to talk about that incarnation of Shanghai. You know, there's this, there's this yes. old Shanghai, which, which hopefully I never, I, I do glamorize it to an extent, but hopefully always remind you that there was terrible poverty and terrible disease and people dying in the streets. It was, it was a city with no safety net, you know, a city with no welfare. Um, and then there was uh, this chaotic time after the war, and then, of course, there's the revolution. Now, the revolutionary times are for someone else to tell, but I, I want to do this this last period of, mm. of desperation when all of these people uh, had to had to make decisions about where they were going to go and how they were going to get out of the city. But again, it will be based around true stories at that time and, and based around true crimes because people undertake criminal acts when they need to get money and, and, and get out of somewhere um, mm. with some reprise of various people from City of Devils. So I'm staying very much in that world. But once again, I'm already, and have in the last year or so, I've just been in America and before I was in Hong Kong, there were lots of American soldiers in the city at that time. And I've managed to meet quite a few of them and their children who have lots of photos and things. So by moving into the post-war period, I am meeting, there's still quite a lot of guys around. Yeah. And, and some women who work for the United Nations who, um, who, uh, uh, we're in Shanghai in 1949 as, as young GIs, as, as, as young typists and secretaries with the United Nations. And many people here in London, uh, particularly in Sydney, um, who were children at that time of their parents were working out where they were going to go. You know, they'd come mm-hmm. from Germany to Shanghai. They certainly didn't want to go back to Germany or Poland or anywhere. 
Um, that they were looking, you know, can we get to Australia? What, what, what is Australia? Is always the question, you know? When they were told, well, there's a visa for Australia, they'd be like, what's that? <laughs> Never really thought about it. Uh, America, where they can get to Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, you know, all the places that the, the foreign and Chinese diaspora went to and how they got there. So it, it's another kind of big swirling milieu of a, of a story. So it, it'll take a while. Yeah, well, with, considering the amount of research that you obviously like to do, um, it probably will. So what would be, if you, uh, let's sort of finish up on um, for people who are listening to this and they think they love this idea of finding a period in history that they're obviously interested in and to write nonfiction about it in this vein, what would be your, say, top three tips? Number one is you have to be a complete obsessive. Mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. to be totally obsessed with that you period <laughs> and yes. the story within the period. Because if mm-hmm. you're not, you can't expect anyone else to. And if you're going to do a book that really recreates that period, it is going to be a lot of work. You're going to have to read novels from the time. You're going to have to read newspapers, magazines, watch movies if you can from that period. You're going to have to read lots and lots of badly written self-published memoirs. You're going to have to go, you're going to have to read the academic work as well. I mean, I, I have to give a big debt to academics who do this work that only a few people read and you take elements of it and, and make it much more uh, popular. Um, you're going to have to do all of that. You're going to have to listen to the, you've got to immerse yourself. Don't listen to anything but the music of the time. Only watch mm. films from that time. Read film scripts from that time to get a sense of the rhythm and the style of language. You've got to completely immerse yourself. And if you're not willing to do that, then I don't think you can really expect anyone to be willing to give you the, you know, the seven, twelve hours that it will take to read your book. Um, what, what, so, so that that I think is really the major tip. Um, the become second obsessive. one would be, I think, mm-hmm. become obsessive. And then the, the other one would be the tip that every, it should be the first thing every writer would be writer is ever told, though I'm not so sure it always is, just read, right? You've just got to read oh, yes. and read and read. And you've got to read around your period. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm very honoured when reviewers with Midnight Blue King and more, more with this book have said things like, oh, you know, it's like reading uh, Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett mm-hmm. or someone like that. Yeah, and I think, yeah. well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that copy. Upset. It's not because those guys were writing about contemporaneous society around them in Los Angeles and San Francisco. What, what I'm doing is more, I guess, what you would call neo-noir, which is more writers like James Elroy, mm. people like that. You know, we didn't really live in that time, not as adults in Elroy's case. He was a child mm. at some of that time. But, you know, we're looking back at a world. We're trying to recreate a world. Mm. Um, so in order to do that, you have to read what people were reading at that time. For my time, the Pulp Fiction, but, you know, I constantly read and reread writers from that period. Graham Greene, Anthony Pohl, um, George Orwell, um, Henry York, you know, the, the, the great the great writers of, of, of the 1930s, really, uh, to try and get a sense of how they talk and how, and how they structure things. Not, not to imitate, but just to kind of, like, by a process of osmosis, trying to take it in, and then out of that comes your writing style. And I think when you're writing historical fiction or non-fiction, you need to think of the style. I read a lot of historical fiction that's written in very contemporary style, and it loses me somewhat. 
know, right. there's a writing of the period. You know, you need to think of what's the right style for the story you're telling. When I did Midnight in Peking, mm. I thought it was, because it was a murder case, I thought it was more procedural but with quite a few descriptive passages. When I did City of Devils and I started writing about Shanghai, we're talking about a city that really does have lots of neon, rain-slicked streets, jazz, cabaret, chorus girls, gangsters. I thought, this is noir, right? This is a mm. classic 1930s noir city. And you need to take the conventions and the, and the, and, and the tricks of, of noir writing, whether it's the noir writers of the 30s and 40s, Dorothy L. Hughes, or Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, people like that, mm. those great writers, the hard-boiled writers, or the neo-noirs like, like Elroy. And you need to look at how that style helps you, helps you create the historical emotion. I think that's very important. Sometimes I read historical fiction that really isn't, isn't giving me the kind of, I'm feeling it's written in 2018 about that yeah. time. Whereas someone like, and I know nothing about her, Hilary Mantel, of course, you know, mm. without copying sort of medieval literature, she, her style is part of what takes me back to that period, even though I myself, I, I'm completely in her hands because I, I, you know, I would fail any exam on that, on that period of history. But it's, um, so I think style is the second thing you need to think about. Yeah, awesome. Um, okay, yeah, that's, and did you have a third? Well, I think the third, I think the third for me, if you look at, Good true crime, uh, literary non-fiction, and so on. Yeah. So look at all the stuff that goes around it, right? So I mean, I think that you know, readers probably do want maps and photographs and images, and to see what mm. the newspapers look like at the times. And there's ways that you can give them that. Um, in City of Devils, I actually reprint some newspaper articles from the Times yeah. to try and give you a sense of of the period and and what was going on around these people. Right? They didn't live in isolation. Uh, there are also uh, things going on around them. And I think, think of the book not just as 90 or 100,000 words of text, but think of telling these stories. You know, we have, particularly with all the ebook technology we have now and audio books and, you know, so much people are reading in so many different ways and the printing techniques we can do. I, I make quite a big deal about what typeface I want. You know, I want that Art Deco typeface. I wondered about that. Anything. Yeah, anything that can can help take the reader into the period, I think is very important. Interesting. You know, you you can do all of that so easily now. When I first started writing, trying to lay up pages, you know, it was like to get anything put in, like um, incuses, you know, the little things you use to break up paragraphs or or to try and get things done as an Art Deco font at the start of practice would have been very difficult but now with you know laying everything up on computers it's easy to do i just think that so many writers don't think about those aspects that is i that's fascinating okay i could talk to you for hours but uh we've come to the end of our chat um congratulations on city of devils and um i can't wait to read the next one now (laughs) thank you so much for for joining us today paul This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. 
a popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash creative writing. There you go, Paul French. Well, that was really interesting. Like he's obviously heavily invested like all the way down to the font, yeah. which is yes. kind of interesting. Absolutely. I thought that that was really interesting that he went, that he, you know, took that level of care to even think about the reader experience while looking at the typeface. So, um, yeah, really good. Really, I enjoyed that. Interview. All right. So uh, what are you doing in the coming week apart from well, you're, you're, you've got book week coming up? Well, I have got it coming up. So I'm basically, I'm, I'm organising myself for that, but I'm also, I actually do have a school visit this week as well. But um, I'm also preparing myself for Brisbane Writers Festival, which is oh, coming yes. up at September. the start of September. Yeah, so I've got some things because I'm going to be doing a webinar as part of that um, oh. at the State Library. Yeah, so that's been really interesting because I haven't done one before and so I've been liaising with the terrific staff there at um, at the State Library and uh, just organising what needs to be done um, for that. So I've, I'm sort of brushing up my PowerPoint preserve and, you know, getting my best speaking voice out to practice. Oh, you've that. got a great speaking voice, so you'll <laughs> kill it. You'll kill it. I'm killing it, yes, killing it, I yes. will. Um, awesome. What about you? What are you up to? I have a uh, big corporate training coming up next week, so I will be preparing for that. That will be awesome. yes. Excellent. Very, very busy. Very busy. Um, busy. All right. Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and on your Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you know, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, please do connect with both of us in the podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's a really, really cool place with some awesome writers and aspiring writers. So that's uh, um, So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.